Well, hey, Crosspoint, there is something so special about being together, about worshiping together on the weekends. And one of the ways that we worship is through giving. And as our guest experience team comes forward, we want to give you an opportunity to give. And, uh, and, and what we're able to do together, both inside the walls of the church and outside the walls of the church, are made possible because of the way that you give. And giving online is the easiest and best way to give. And you can follow the QR code on the screen, or you can text GIVE to 615-615 and follow the prompts. And, and if you're our guest today, there's no obligation to give. But if you call Crosspoint your church home, it's an opportunity we have to, uh, to live out one of our core values, which is to live generously. And, uh, and I want to take a few moments just speaking to how you've demonstrated that and celebrating how you demonstrated that. So we're going to look back and then we're going to look forward to what's ahead. So first to look back, if, if, you were, uh, if you were around at the end of last year, you remember we had the opportunity to give towards some initiatives that we believe that God had invited us into. And it's part of our end of year giving campaign. We were looking to raise $525,000 in one month. But because of your generosity and so many of you going above and beyond, we were able to raise over $600,000. So first off, I want to say thank you. Um, we were able to make a big difference together, a huge difference when we all do good together. And when we focus on our neighbors and the nations, using these funds to come alongside some key organizations, partners like our partner in prison ministry, God Behind Bars, and, and Pando is, is flourishing because of your support. Last year, we had over a million views of our services by inmates who were worshiping with us on the Pando app, and over 900 people made decisions to follow Jesus. And that's why it's so important and powerful um, that we're sharing the gospel in these spaces. And I love Love that we've been able to come alongside them with $100,000. Your generosity helps us continue to partner and bring hope to men and women behind bars. And our mission at Crosspoint is to help people find and follow Jesus, and that goes beyond Middle Tennessee. It's for our neighbors and the nations, and your generosity, it enabled us to make a $225,000 donation to Convoy of Hope, partner with them to establish and grow new initiatives in West Africa, to create a sustainable feeding center and a school and, and help break the poverty cycle in that community through helping 320 women launch businesses, providing financial education, micro-enterprise training, and, uh, and some seed capital to help start and operate their businesses, which will transform a community and bring the gospel to a closed country because you gave. An investment in these programs is an investment not only in the lives of those people and in the development of their communities, it's an investment in their eternity as well. And we also shared a Dollar Club story last year in partnership with Both Hands. And, and this organization comes alongside widows and orphans, uh, supporting them practically and financially. And well, well, we want to do more than just assist one individual. So the Dollar Club team was able to surprise Both Hands and their staff team at a recent meeting. Because of the generosity of a whole lot of people in our end of year giving, we have a check today for Both Hands for $150,000. So. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, uh, that's amazing. It's amazing. In church, we're excited to see how God continues to impact our neighbors and our nations as we follow his lead. 
And now to the look ahead. Let's look back and celebrate what God has done. And, and now let's look ahead together at, uh, at what's, what's coming up. And uh, if you've been around a while, you know that February is an important month for us as a church. It's a time of prayer and fasting called Awaken. And we join together as a church with other churches in, in Middle Tennessee to intentionally seek the fullness of God. Like that's our theme this year is, is fullness. And we're going to make space. We're going we're gonna to prioritize um, things like reading scripture together. And uh, we're going to read through the book of Acts one chapter a day. And, uh, and so we want to encourage you to press in and, uh, in the word and to press in and fasting. And so we've got some resources to, to help you with that. And then we're going to also, uh, we're going to pray together. And we've got some bookmarks that, uh, that we've created with some names, uh, space on them for you to write down names of friends, five people that you're going to be praying for this month, that they would experience more of God in their lives. I want you to be mindful like this series, Here and Now, where we've been looking at the book of Hebrews and talking about that we're all running a race, but none of us are supposed to run alone. I, I want you to know, um, I am so uh, grateful. Um, I'm grateful for the team that we have at this church. Um, we weren't meant to run alone. I love this church. I love this team. And, and I'm grateful for our team. And we've got um, a gifted teacher on staff, um, one of our campus pastors, uh, James Savage, from out at our Dixon campus. Uh, he's going to close out this series for us. And I've known Pastor James uh, since he was a kid. And, uh, and he probably doesn't want me to tell any stories about that. But uh, his family lived across the street from our family. It's been amazing to watch him grow um, as a man of God in wisdom and in his gift to pastor and, and teach the Bible. Um, he's running the race well. And, uh, and I know that God has a message to share with you today. So lean in, take notes, and let's give a warm welcome to Pastor James Savage. So what I'm about to say is true. In 1996, I ran in the Olympic marathon that was held in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was seven years old. So let me tell you how that happened. It was a big deal when they announced that the Olympics were going to be in Atlanta because I lived 25 miles outside of Atlanta in a suburb car called uh, Lawrenceville. Uh, we went to a few of the events. This is a picture of my sister, Grace. That's when she was 12. My brother, Jack, was 10. And that's me at seven years old, decked out in patriotism with the sunglasses. I have some vague memories of some of the other events, but I remember clearly the morning of the marathon race. The race started at 7 a.m., so in order to get there in time, my parents woke up, my brother and my sister and I, while it was still dark, and with sleepy eyes, they guided us to the Ford Expedition, and we drove through the darkness on the way to Atlanta. By the time that we found a parking spot in Atlanta, the sun had come up and burned off the coolness of the night, replacing it with warm, humid summer air that you find in Atlanta in July. With a thousand other people around, we made our way to a sidewalk that lined the downtown road that would soon have the Olympic runners racing down it. I was surprised that there were no barriers, there were no ropes. The only change that had been made was a blue line was painted down the center of that road that marked out the race for the runners. So there I stood with family and friends and strangers and we waited. And we waited until far off in the distance, we could see coming up over a hill, blue lights. The lights from the police motorcycles and their motorcade, they were flashing their sirens or flashing their lights and hitting their sirens to let the spectators know that the runners were coming. And then the motorcycles passed in front of us with a loud roar that was then replaced with silence. 
But that silence did not last long. That silence was then replaced by the pounding and the stomping and the powdering, pounding of the athlete's feet. And then all of a sudden there they were running in, in front of me so, so much faster than I would have expected anyone to be running a marathon. But these were the Olympic athletes. And as a seven-year-old, I stood there transfixed. I was in arm's length reach of the fastest and best athletes from across the entire world, running in one of the most difficult events that there is. I could see the sweat pouring from their face. I could hear their labored breathing, and I saw their eyes focused on the race that they had set out before them. At this point in the race, there had been pockets that had formed. So it was a group of runners and a gap, and then a group of runners and then a gap. And then as the last group of runners went by, it was over. It felt like everybody on the sidewalk exhaled the breath that we had been holding as we watched the last set of runners disappear off into the distance. Now at this point, since the race was over, everyone started to grab their personal items and put together their folding chairs. And that's when I saw my dad looking at my brother, my sister and I with this knowing smile on his face. He said, kids, before we go back to the car, do you wanna run where the Olympians just ran? Of course, the only answer is yes. So he said, go out to that blue line that marks the race, stay where I can see you, and go run. Y'all, I remember when I stepped off of the sidewalk and onto the street, it was as if I could hear the music begin to play in the back of my mind. These are historic streets, still warm from the athlete's feet, still wet from their sweat, and there I was. I went out to that blue line in between my sister Grace and my brother Jack. We crouched down as my sister called out, on your marks, get set, go. And we burst forward with as much energy and speed as we could muster and everything in my life turned into slow motion. I saw my sister pump her fist in the air. She called out, we are running in the Olympics. I looked over my shoulder to see my dad cheering us on. Go, go, go. I looked over at Jack and we cheered out together. We're running in the Olympics and further and faster we ran in the streets of history. I don't know how far we ran. Depending on the sibling that you ask, we ran 50 yards, 100 yards, maybe even more. The point is we ran far. At some point I look to see the distance that we'd created for my parents. And at this point I see my dad now with both of his hands in the air and he's running towards us saying something that I can't make out. I glance at his face and I notice that his face is no longer filled with joy. Instead it's filled with concern and maybe even fear. And that's what I noticed that behind my dad who's running towards us is more blue lights. At this point, I realized that my dad is no longer saying, go, go, go. He's saying, get out of the road because the officer behind him is saying, get out of the road because the officer had something else behind him, which was more Olympic runners running the fastest that anyone in the world can run, about to be blocked by a grown man and three children spread across the road. And now everyone is yelling at us, get out of the road. And as quickly as we could, we dashed over the sidewalk and dispersed amongst the crowd in just enough time for the police officer and the Olympic athletes to rush by. To my knowledge, we did not actually disrupt the final times of the event that day. We did go home that night watching the local news filled with fear that there might be a story about a family <laughs> who created an international incident at the Olympics. But to my knowledge, to my knowledge, we did not. However, for the rest of my life, my brother and my sister and I have been able to say with honesty that we ran in the 1996 Olympic marathon, even though we were kids. 
Now, the reason why I tell that story is because all month long we've been in a series called Here and Now, where we've looked at this analogy that's sprinkled throughout the Bible that says that all of us are running a race in this life. And the turn of the new year, January, it gives us an opportunity to ask ourselves some questions like, how's your race going? Are you running in the direction that you thought you would? And what are the things that we're carrying with us on this race? Are they things that are helping us or things that are hindering us or even pulling us out of the race that God has marked out for us? Each Sunday, we've been coming back to this passage in the book of Hebrews, starting in uh, chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. Over the course of this month, we've looked at how when we throw off things like distraction, when we throw off things like um, comparison and even problems, how we are better fit to run the race that God has set out before us. And today, as we finish out this series, we're gonna see if we can wrestle down and put back to the side the monster that is criticism. And I use that word monster intentionally. Although we become very comfortable with criticism in our lives, truth be told, it is more sneaky, it is more dangerous, it is more insidious than we often give it credit for. And if we're willing to go toe to toe with the monster that is criticism, we might actually be able to be ready to run the race that God has set before each of us. Now, there are healthy versions of criticism where we work to make ourselves and each other better. That's probably better defined with the word critique. But when I say criticism, what I mean is the pattern of unhealthy negative assessment that we place on ourselves and others that lead to devaluing people, including ourselves. That often breaks down into three categories, inner criticism, outer criticism, and being critical of others. And we all know inner criticism. This is the voice in our heads that says, the reason why I did not achieve what I thought I should is because I have less value, I have less worth, I'm more guilty, I'm more deviant than the people around me. And it's easy to listen to that voice because we live in a culture that says, you should be critical of yourself. We have a culture that says, you should be prettier, you should be stronger, you should be more kind, you should be more forceful, you should have a better job, you should be making more money by now. At this point, you should have become a better Christian. And all it takes is one social media post, one passing comment from someone else, one look in the mirror for us to be reminded by inner criticism, you're right, there is a problem in the world and that problem is me. And then we have to deal with outer criticism when someone else lets us know that they are disappointed with something that we've done or with who we are. And that's well and fine because all they do when they criticize us is pour gasoline on the fire that is already raging inside that says, I am not enough, I am the problem. So we learn to walk around with this anxiety and this tension and it feels like the only relief that we can get is to project it onto someone else. So we say, well, I might not be perfect, but let's be honest, neither are any of them and I can tell you why because we have this tension in our heart, we develop criticism to deal with the pain. But if you study criticism, what you'll learn is that it's not just about what I think about you, what you think about me, or what I think about myself. Criticism is a symptom of something deeper happening underneath. It's our wrestling with and often avoiding a question that all of us want to know the answer to, but we're often too afraid to ask. This question runs in the back of our mind like an open tab on a computer. It's always there, but when we put ourselves out on a limb or when we face rejection, 
when life gets really quiet and we assess where we are in our race, when we experience trauma or when we remember the trauma that we have experienced, the volume of this question raises in our minds. The question that all of us are always wondering is do I belong? I mean, really at the end of the day, do I have enough worth? Do I have enough value to actually belong? And the great fear is that one day that we're gonna find out that the answer is no. Someone's gonna flash a light and tap us on the shoulder and say, get out of the road because you don't belong here. What's so dangerous about criticism is that criticism feels like a helpful way to, to contend with that question because it can provide some relief. It can feel good. When I am at my most insecure, it, will, it feels good for me to increase my status by decreasing your status through criticism. Even in a, twist, in a twisted way, self-criticism can feel good because I can say, well, I might not have very much self-worth, but at least I know how worthless I am and I can orient my life around that fact. Because, because criticism gives us a sense of relief we feed it, we feed that monster, but then what we feed grows and what we feed, we invite back and what we feed, we develop a deeper craving for as a result, criticism because our go, becomes our go-to method for dealing with our pain and our fear and our insecurity. And the incredible irony is that we use it to keep ourselves in the race, not realizing that it is the very thing that is eating away at us and pulling us out of it. But this morning, I want us to zoom way back and ask a different question. I, I know that we ask on some level in our hearts with sincerity that we wanna know, do I belong? But, but I wonder if we pulled way back and asked this. I understand that it, that, that is a sincere question, but is it, a, is it a helpful one? At least for followers of Jesus, which I'm gonna assume that there's some followers of Jesus here. Is it helpful? Is it necessary, needed, or even helpful to be asking, do I belong? And what if it's not? Imagine with me, imagine a world where you and I are not so impacted by other people's opinions. Imagine a world where we don't have such a deep desire to give our opinions of others. I mean, imagine a world where your worth is not up for debate. I think if we're willing to go toe to toe with a monster of criticism, we could get to that place. But in order to do that, we gotta go back to the book of Hebrews. If you've been here this month, then you might, remember, you might remember that the point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than anyone who came before him because he was able to do the one thing that no one else could do. Jesus was able to solve the problem of sin. Sin breaks our relationship with God. We are all inherently sinful. Therefore, our relationship with God is broken. And listen, if that was the end of the story, then yeah. Maybe we need something like criticism for us to, to determine our own value. But the author of Hebrews says, that's not the story that we're living in. The author of Hebrews says that because of the work of Christ, because his life and death and resurrection, because his worth and value has been offered to you and I, followers of Jesus never have to ask the question of whether or not we belong again. I wanna read you a passage, a scripture that speaks to this. And listen, to you and me, this is gonna sound like a Bible verse. But to the people who heard this 2,000 years ago, it would have been a radical and wild claim that would have either been laughable or offensive. So if you go back two chapters to Hebrews chapter 10 and read uh, starting in verse 19, you'll see the author says, therefore, 
Meaning, therefore, since Jesus has done this great thing in defeating sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, stop. Okay, this moment, someone in the crowd likely, probably should have raised their hand and said, hold up, what did you just say? Because it sounded like you said that we could enter the most holy place. And we all know that that's not true. They would have either laughed or they would have left. Because ancient Judaism was centered on the temple that was in Jerusalem because there was a special room, an isolated room called the most holy place in the interior of that temple. It had three walls and a thick curtain. It was a place where heaven literally met earth. God's spirit dwelled in the most holy place and nobody could go in there. If anyone went into the most holy place, they would be immediately struck dead. Not because God's like, I'm just gonna zap anybody who comes in here, but because God's spirit was there and God's spirit is purely holy and holy and unholy cannot exist at the same place in time. So if God's spirit, which is holy, is in the most holy place and someone who is sinful and unholy comes into that place, that person can't withstand the holiness, the, the holiness, the power of God's holiness and they're struck dead. Only once a year, could the high priest of the temple, after being morally and ritually made pure, only then at that one time a year, could he go into the most holy place to sprinkle the blood of animals that had been sacrificed on behalf of the people. Only then could he go in there. And everyone knew that. Everyone knew you dare not stand in the presence of a holy God. But early Christians started making some pretty wild claims. I mean, 2,000 years ago, there was a group of people who said, that guy, Jesus, the carpenter, the rabbi, he's actually God himself in the flesh. Not only that, they claimed that after Jesus had been executed on a Roman cross, three days later, he rose himself from the dead. Not only that, they claimed that anyone who repented in Jesus's name would be forgiven of their sins by Jesus. And maybe the most wild and radical claim of all is that early Christians claimed that Jesus's forgiveness was so powerful, so resolute, so purifying of the soul that Jesus would take the spirit that used to only be able to reside in the most holy place and put it in the heart of the person that had been forgiven by Jesus because the forgiven heart had been made able to withstand the holiness of God through Jesus's righteousness. And that's how the author of Hebrews was able to say, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then let us enter near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled and cleansed from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not forsaking meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as we see the day approaching when we get to see Jesus again. So is it necessary, needed, helpful 
for followers of Jesus to ask the question, do I belong? No. Because your value is not determined in what you think of other people, what other people think about you, or what you think about yourself. Your value is found in a God who says, I have placed my worthiness, my value, and my holiness inside of you. So when we use things like criticism to determine our value, it's like us fighting an enemy that's already been defeated. If you want my opinion, my opinion is that we say enough is enough. Personally, I wanna be done with fighting the enemies that Jesus has, been, that Jesus has already defeated. And I wanna live the life that he has set out for me and to run the race that he has set out for me. And I wanna get tangled up and tripped up with the things that Jesus has already put over on the sidewalk. And I imagine we could start asking the questions, what if we did this? What if we started believing that the gospel of Jesus isn't just a story that we listen to on Sundays, but it is a thing that influences our life? What if we said that I believe that there is a race for me to run? And I've been invited into that race by the grace of Jesus. It might be an easy thing to hear and a difficult thing to believe and a more difficult thing to live, but just because it's difficult doesn't make it not true. I know I used a double negative there. I'm sorry, English teachers. If this is true, you and I have a decision to make. Are we gonna continue to live in the patterns of criticism that have caused us so much pain, or are we willing to consider the idea that Jesus has a different path for us? And we can experience the transformation of our souls on that path. And that the transformation of our souls takes place in the application of our faith, young or weak or small as that faith may be. Y'all, I believe that it is true that Jesus has placed a path before each of us and has given you a race to run, even if you think there's no way that that grace is for me. I believe that it is. I believe that we have a race to run. And since we have a race to run, what we have to start doing now is to start training. You ask anyone who's an athlete, you wanna be prepared for the race, you better start training. So how are we gonna train here? How are we gonna train well? Anytime you ask an athlete, how do you train well? They will likely start off by saying, you need to train often. No one got strong because they lifted heavy once. They got strong because they trained often. So we can, see, we can say that daily, we will draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance with faith, that faith brings. And we can hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, which sounds great, but you might be asking, how do I actually do that? Great question. Starting Wednesday, we're diving right into Awaken. And Awaken is the time that we are going to train often, train our hearts and our eyes to be put back on Jesus. Just like an athlete removes everything from their eyesight except from the finish line, in February, we will remove everything but Jesus in front of our eyes and in front of our hearts. Throughout the month of February, we're gonna pray and fast every day. So we're gonna decide what are we fasting from and what are we fasting for? And whatever we remove from our lives in February, we are putting back into that place prayer and scripture. That's why this bookmark is so important because it'll be a reminder all February long that I'm not just removing something from my life, I'm training my eyes and my hearts to be back on Jesus. So if we're gonna train well, we're gonna train often. But if you ask an athlete, they'll tell you, don't only train often, it's important that we train together. Confession, I'm a bad runner. I run, but I'm not good at it. It feels awkward. I get winded way too fast and I don't necessarily like it, but I know that it's good for me. So I run anyway. What I found is I run farther, faster, and more efficiently when I'm with people who are runners, 
They help me with my bad technique, my bad form. They help me with my bad breathing and sometimes my bad attitude. They help me. And when I run with them, we learn how to run together. I found that to be true for running and I found it to be true for faith. Because for many of us in here, you're thinking, he's asking me to fast and to pray for an entire month. That doesn't feel natural. That doesn't feel familiar. I don't know how to do that. And the good news is that no one is asking you to do that alone. That in February, we say we will do this together. In February, we say that we will consider how we would spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not forsaking meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. So we get to say, let's do this together. For our, throughout the month of February, Say, I'm gonna be here. I'm gonna worship together every Sunday that I'm in town in February. I will be at my small group every time that we meet in February to grow together. I'll be here on February 29th as all campuses come to Nashville to celebrate what God did when we put our eyes and our hearts back on him. Because we don't only train often, we train together. And then ask any athlete, they'll tell you of an important thing that is something that is easy to forget. Not only train often and train together, but bring the right gear. Bringing ice skates to a marathon won't get you very far. And as we finish out this series, I want you to have a piece of gear. I want you to have a tool in your tool belt so that when criticism rears its ugly head and says, remember, you need me, you can pull this tool out and say, no, 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 I've trained for this moment to not be consumed by the monster that is criticism. It's a four sentence prayer. And honestly, I think it's so important. It can be so transformative. I want us to say it together so that we can get it in our minds and in our hearts. So would you repeat this after me? When criticism rears its ugly head and you wanna put your eyes back on Jesus, say these four sentences. So let's say this together. Father, I belong to you. And they do too. So what are you asking me to say? And what are you asking me to do? Well, I'm pretty good. When I say, Father, I belong to you and they do too, it puts me in a place of humility to say, I don't get to determine anyone's value here and they don't get to determine mine. That's up to God. And when I say, what are you asking me to say? And what are you asking me to do? I'm literally replacing my criticism with curiosity. Saying, God, I know that you have a plan here that I may or may not see. So what are you asking me to say? And what are you asking me to do? And you know, when we do this, when we decide that there is a race for us to run, therefore we will train often, and train together and bring the right gear, we are literally starving the monster that is criticism and feeding our hearts with the gospel. So before we finish, I wanna make one thing clear. What I'm not saying is that I think that you will do well in this race because you're strong enough. In fact, it's likely that the opposite is true. It's likely that instead of being strong, you're weak. I say that because I'm weak. You will likely daily have to battle sin and criticism because I battle sin and criticism. I'm forgiven of my sin and yet wrestle with it every day because I'm not done. I am still on a journey as I grow in the likeness of Jesus. And yet, and yet, even though that is true, we can hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, not because we in and of ourselves are strong enough, but because he who promised that his grace would be enough, Jesus himself is faithful. Because he who promised is the one who draws us into his grace. Because he who is faithful is the one who gives us the hope to profess. Because he who promised is the one who encourages us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. So let's not make the mistake of thinking that running this race is about how hard we can work. No, it's about letting go and letting our heavenly father 
work through us. So we train often, we train together, we bring the right gear, knowing that it is by grace that we could even be in this race in the first place. Y'all, I have heard that story, told that story. My family has told that story of us running in the Olympics basically every Thanksgiving since it happened. What's interesting is that the beginning of that story is very similar to the picture that's painted in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews paints a picture where there is a God, a father, who looks at us and says, do you wanna go be in that race? Well, then go out to the line that I've marked out for you. Stay where I can see you. Go run. Now, the difference is that when we are running that race and when we look over our shoulder, we don't see a group of people saying, get out of the road. Instead, we see a heavenly father who is standing in the gap that says, I've taken care of these things. Stop fighting the things that I've already defeated. Keep running your race. And you don't let anything, not distractions or comparison or problems or criticism or anything else take you out of the race that I have laid out for you. So this morning, if you're here and you're running that race, then let this morning just be an encouragement to you to keep your eyes focused on Jesus, running the race that he has set before you. And if you're here this morning and you've always thought that the race was for someone else, that faith in Jesus was for someone else, that transformation was for someone else, let me remind you that the book of Hebrews was not only written to the Hebrews 2000 years ago, but it was written to me and it was written to you and it was written to everyone. So the whole world would know that Jesus has made a way for all of us to stand blameless before God and run the race that he has called us to. And if you're here this morning, standing on the sidewalk, You've gotten really good at commenting and criticizing everyone else's race while you yourself are standing still. Let today be a reminder that Christianity is not a spectator sport, that he is a calling for you too. And it might sound scary and it might sound difficult because you've been standing in this place for so long, but this morning, let this be an encouragement to you to be bold. Everyone turn to your neighbor and give him two fist bumps. I'm gonna do this forever. This is the best thing. Give them two fist bumps. When we leave here, we're gonna to continue to give each other two fist bumps. It'll be a reminder to each other to be bold. Be bold enough to live the thing that you say that you believe. And I know what you say that you believe is that Jesus has come to change everything, to invite all people into this race. So if you're not in a small group, join a small group. If you're not serving here, if you haven't found the joy and the fun that is serving at Crosspoint, start serving. If you don't know where to start after this service, go to the info center or if you're on the online chat, go to the chat and ask these questions. When is the next connecting at Crosspoint? When is the next prayer meeting? I know it sounds intimidating and scary because marathons are crazy hard, but a marathon is run one step at a time. So why don't we this morning lift up our leg, put our foot forward and step into the race that God has laid out for us? Because the gospel of Jesus says that there's a father who says, go to the blue line. I know you didn't earn it. I know you feel like you don't deserve it. But I'm your dad. And I painted that blue line for you. So go put your toes on the line. And trust me when I say run. In fact, I want to ask everyone to stand up. If you're able to, you please stand your feet. We're going to finish this together. And let's just put this in our minds. Y'all imagine if we did this. 
Imagine if each one of us chose to run the race that God has set out before us, knowing we might trip and we might fall, but that's okay because there is a grace that lives inside of us because God put his spirit, which is holy in our hearts to guide us. And we are surrounded by people who will help us up and help us continue on the journey that is before us. Imagine, imagine from this day forward, we say we're done. We're done fighting the things that Jesus has defeated. From now on, I'm going to train often. We're gonna to train together. We're gonna to bring the right gear. And we're deciding that today we will be a part of a life-changing, kingdom-building, disciple-sending, miracle-witnessing, Jesus-worshiping, community-caring, world-altering body of believers who race, strive, train, and pursue nothing less, nothing less than the salvation of every soul in our community because we believe that Jesus has made a way for all people to stand blameless before a holy God. And he has given each one of you, each one of us, a race to run on the journey that is his redemption story of the world. So since we, look around, everyone just look around, take a look to your neighbor, look behind you, look in front of you. Since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, Today, we decide that we will throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We will run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And we will run this race daily, drawing near to God with a glad and sincere heart with the full assurance that faith brings because he who promised is the one who faithful. So let's today decide that we will spur one another on toward love and good deeds, encouraging each other. And all this, doing this, running, knowing that there is a day approaching when Jesus runs with us across that finish line. Friends, family, followers of Jesus, the race starts here. The race starts now. And you are invited to this race. Put your toes on the line. Are you in? Are we in? Are we doing this? Then let's go. Say about